0: All right, let's start tonight by reading part of a passage from Isaiah 11. We'll look at several other verses from this passage before I'm done. But I want to start here in this part of the passage. Thanks, here. In verse 1, and it says this But on this humbled ground, a tiny shoot, a hopeful and promising, will sprout from Jesse's stump. A branch will emerge from his roots to bear fruit, and on this child from David's line, the spirit of the Eternal One will alight and rest. By the spirit of wisdom and discernment, he will shine like the dew. By the spirit of counsel and strength, he will judge fairly and act courageously. By the spirit of knowledge and reverence of the Eternal One, he will take pleasure in honoring the Eternal. He will determine fairness And equity. He will consider more than what meets the eye and weigh in more than what he's told. So that even those who can't afford a good defense will nevertheless get a fair and equitable judgment. With just a word, he will end wickedness and abolish oppression. With nothing more than the breath of his mouth, he will destroy evil. He will clothe himself with righteousness and truth, the impulse to right wrongs, will be in his blood. We are starting into a series of talking about what it is we believe as followers of Jesus by engaging some big questions that I think we face in personal ways and that people around us and the world around us faces on a regular basis. Last week, we started by talking primarily about what do we do with the problem of spiritual thirsts with the fact that People are made with a spiritual element to them, and so many things around us in the world tell us to deaden that part of ourselves or to redirect it to things that do not fill us. And so people keep coming back to this place of, though I've walked over here and thought, I can do without feeding this spiritual part of myself with something that lasts, I I continually come back to this question that there's gotta be something more. And um, I don't want to share a bunch of details, but uh, I mentioned as I talked about that last week that the older I get, the more I see this happen in the lives of people my age, people that I've grown up with who have gone another way, but hit these moments in their lives where they realize something's missing and I'm lost. And uh, I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday morning. But I got an email from a friend I haven't seen in 30 years, who found me and uh, is in the midst of like dramatic personal tragedy and just happens to have a connection here in town with all of that and said, I don't know what I need, I just need a friend here in town. It's like, um, sometimes uh, my preaching intersects real life in ways that um, I don't just stir up for the sake of an illustration. Um, so I just ask that you pray for him, and for me, as, as we walk through that. But it was just another reminder that that's true, that that's real, that that's a question, that that's a dilemma that faces everyone at some point. And it, it calls for an answer. Tonight I want to talk about uh, two things, justice and beauty. And the questions that we run into in these two areas, I'm going to mostly talk about justice, we'll talk about beauty for a few minutes before I'm done at the end But I do this, we're doing this as we make our way into talking about what we believe for a very specific reason. One of the, probably the best compliment I've ever gotten about my preaching um, that didn't come from someone i married to, several years ago, someone said to me, the thing I love about your preaching is that no matter what you're talking about, it feels like somewhere before the end, there's a moment where you say, behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, And that, uh, I don't repeat that to pat myself on the back, Um, I repeat that because uh, she was uh, identifying something for me that I hadn't identified in that explicit a way yet, but it kind of became a marker for me, and it is something that I think really deliberately about every time I preach, that we ought to be able to look at Jesus, through whatever it is I say at some point before I'm done. And so these the last week and this week are a little bit different for me because instead of taking you up to and sort of spelling out Jesus as the answer to things, we're spending more time talking about the problems. But the rest of the series is going to be us diving into who God is and who Jesus is and what what it looks like to ask those questions and, and look at, the gospel, and look at the truth of the kingdom as answers to those questions. And so I said last week, I'll put this on the screen again, but I want to talk about these questions to remind you that you and people around you are perpetually asking questions and facing very real human issues for which the faith handed down once and for all is the answer. And then my hope is engaging with these questions helps us enter into the weeks of describing the unique truths of Christianity with our eyes wide open for answers to those questions and problems. So um, we could have, I could have come up with a long list of different questions uh, and I, I, I focus on three that N.T. Wright men- mentions in the book I told you about last week. Um, and the first one I wanna talk about tonight is this question of justice and what do we do with uh, our desire for justice? in the world, in our lives and in the world around us with the fact that it emerges at times and actually happens, but with the reality that we still are faced with enormous injustice. And we are liable at any given moment to experience an injustice directed at us that we can't solve. And we can always look around and find injustice thriving. And so what do we do with that? And as I see it, I think we have a couple of primary dilemmas as it relates to justice. The first is this, that we deeply desire justice, but we are not wholly just. I'm going to talk about both of these. The second is that we can pursue justice. We can go out and work for justice. But even then, we find true justice is often incomplete, imperfect, and elusive. So, let's talk about the first of those problems that we face and that I think all humans run into at some point, and that is that as an individual, I I really care about justice. When I see injustice, certainly when injustice happens to me, I care about that, and I want to see it righted, and when I see it happen to people around me, uh, I-, I care about that, and I wish I could do something about it, and sometimes I'm motivated enough to try to do something about it, but But (laughs) that's not enough because what I know for sure about myself is that as much as I desire justice, I still carry around injustice in my heart. I am not, no matter how hungry I am for justice for me or for you or for other people in the world, I am not fully just. There are moments when I will do the thing that is easiest for me, whether it's the most just thing or not. There are moments when I will do the thing that's cheaper for me, when I will do whatever it is I choose to do without giving primary consideration to whether it's the most just thing to do. And the truth of the matter is that we live in such a complicated world and complicated economic system that none of us know how to be totally just. Even if we were perfectly good in our hearts, we would have to have infinite knowledge of the world we live in to know exactly what to buy, exactly where to go, exactly what to do, exactly who to advocate for. There would be no way for us to act fully just. But That's not our primary problem. Our primary problem is that we, in our bones, carry around a tendency toward injustice, even though we like to think we're totally just. Here's an example. Uh, Last month, I made some significant changes on my cell phone bill with a large corporate uh, behemoth, who I won't name, Um, but in the course of going through all of that chaos of making these changes on the way that our cell phone bill worked, I was given several assurances about what I would pay for, what I wouldn't pay for, how all that would work on my bill. And so, of course, as soon as I did it, um, all of those things happened that they told me wouldn't happen. and all the things that they told me uh, would happen didn't happen. And so I then am fighting the injustice of the corporate machine. and I am fighting to get my money back. I, actually, they didn't have my money yet, but I looked at my bill and I say, saying, "You're not getting this money from me. This isn't this is not just. This is not what you told me would be true. And I was polite. Yeah, but firm, and in the course of all of this, arguing and, and all the while thinking, I'm not being greedy, I'm just going for what's just, I'm just going for what's right. Um, parallel to this, uh, we're, we're in this stage of life with Aiden, who's 16 now, that he's driving around running errands for us, and all the wonderful things that come with having a child with a driver's license. Uh, along with the terror, come many wonderful things, and he has a bank account and he has Venmo, and so he's, he's like, he can do it, everything that we can do as long as we sort of backfill the money that he spends on our behalf. And so he had been telling me for a few weeks that we owed him $30, $40. He's not even looking at me. Hey, look at me when I'm talking about you. You remember? $30, $40, something in that range, right? Something in that neighborhood. Um, and my first response to my child telling me that I owe him money <clears throat> is not an altogether warm one, um, because I said, if you want to sit down and do an accounting of the ledger here, we can do that. Um, and I gave him a hard time for a while, and I honestly, I'm not going to look at him again, because I'm not sure that we've ever fully settled up uh, that account, because he really did. He bought groceries, or he bought, I don't remember what he did, but he bought something that normally we would pay for. Uh, It just revealed to me that over here, where it benefits me, I cared about justice with the large corporate entity. And then at home, I'm the large corporate entity, and my son is wanting to be repaid, and I'm not as sure how I feel about the justice of all of that. That's a silly example but this is what goes on in us. And it goes on for all kinds of different reasons. Not all of them are just selfish because I want more money. I care a lot about the problem that we have in the world with so many uh, people who are in oppressive and war-torn and impoverished regions of the world and have no hope except to get out and get somewhere else. And we live in a country with abundant resources and we're having this fight over whether to give people asylum and how to treat people who are in that, in that state. And I care a lot about that, but I'm busy <laughs> and I don't know what to do. And I haven't figured out what to do. And I haven't figured out how to give time and energy to that question of justice. I have in me both this deep hunger and this deep desire for justice. And so I think that creates a couple of problems for us. One is that we do know our own hypocrisy, and it often holds us back from hungering, from sort of encouraging that hunger for justice and for, for, from pursuing justice for other people because we kind of know, I'm not sure I can stand up and really fight for this when I know over here I'm not the most just person in the world. Second problem that I think happens and emerges among us, and, and in especially in the political climate in which we live, I, we see this a lot, but we often become blind to our own hypocrisy. And so we scream for justice in spite of our own hypocrisy. And it makes people deaf to the thing that we want justice for. And this is a real, listen, This is I, I'm going to be try to be careful in how I talk about this. But this is a real problem I see as We grow in our knowledge and understanding of what's going on in the world as we become increasingly empathetic and merciful to people, all good things, all things that the gospel should drive you toward, that should be happening in us because of the Spirit working in us. But as that happens and as we grow more enlightened and as we ourselves grow more merciful toward certain people, do we become less merciful toward people who don't see what we now see, even though we didn't see it five minutes ago. And we have a problem, of course, with I know my own hypocrisy, so I don't, I don't fight for justice because of it. But we also have a problem where I forget that I haven't been perfect in my pursuit of justice in all these spaces. And so in my fighting for justice, I suddenly am graceless to people who see the way I saw five minutes ago. And that's not the kingdom either. It is, like all of the rest of this, a representation that we have in us a deep and holy desire from God to see justice take place in the world and a deep brokenness that keeps us from actualizing the kind of justice that should happen. So we have to remember Um, in that, especially as it relates to that second dilemma, that, that that struggle for justice, the primary, I believe, the primary struggle for justice that where we have to start is not between an us and a them. It's easy to feel that way. And certainly there are practicalities at times where there are people who are being unjust who have to be dealt with and confronted. But primarily the dilemma, primarily the struggle is for justice to win in my soul. And for enough people to have their souls changed that justice builds like a river, the way the scriptures describe it. That's, that's the dilemma. Second problem that I think we face with justice is that we can pursue justice, but even when we do it, when we do it well, when we do it purely, we find true justice is often incomplete, is often imperfect, and is often elusive. N.T. Wright, I think, explains this best. He says, "It's as though we can hear not perhaps a voice itself, but the echo of a voice—a voice speaking with calm, healing authority, speaking about justice, about things being put to ri- being put to rights, about peace and hope and prosperity for all." The voice continues to echo in our imagination, our subconscious, calling us, beckoning us, luring us to think there might be such a thing as justice as the world being put to rights, even though we find it so elusive. We're like moths, I love this sentence, we're like moths trying to fly to the moon. We all know there's something called justice, but we can't quite get to it. Think about this uh, as it relates to kids. Are kids, young kids, reliably fair? Do they just come out fair? Being fair to other people? the answer to that, of course, is no. If you don't know, the answer to that is no. You've never been around a child. I'm sorry, that's a sad part of your life that you should do something about. (laughs) Children don't come out fair, but does that stop them from caring deeply about fairness? There's, There's nothing they care about more when they sense an injustice perpetrated on them. And that's just sort of the simplest beginning example of what is true for us as adults and for what is true as, for, uh, true of us as a, as a culture, what is true of us as humans. How much of, of the greatest human experiments and endeavors are driven by this? We want things to be fair. I mean, most of our governments, most of our economic pursuit. I, At their sort of core beginning levels, most of our biggest endeavors are in some way tied to this thing in us that wants to see fairness and justice in the world. And yet, just like we asked about people being fulfilled spiritually or people growing in sort of harmonious relational community, just like we asked about those things last week, I'll ask again about this, about fairness and justice in the world. How close have we ever come to seeing that happen? As Americans, we're told that our legal system is built on this notion of justice for all. My question to you is, have you checked the top podcasts in the country lately? Do you know how much of the podcast industry is driven by the discovery that justice for all is not a reality for lots and lots and lots of people in our justice system? our deepest and best and noblest efforts toward this continue to come up short. The system still does good. It's still filled with people who are like moths trying to fly to the moon. I know people in the system and they care about fairness and justice, but it's deeply broken. And it's not just because of sensationalism. If you think that the stories of injustice in our system are just because the media is sensationalizing things, come and talk to me. (laughs) It's real and it's significant. And people know it intuitively, even though they want to believe the best about our system. I saw a fantastic example of this play out on Twitter yesterday or the day before. Ben Sass, who is a senator, Republican senator from Nebraska. I like a lot about this guy. He seems to really uh, care. He seems to be an actual human in the government, um, which is always a good starting place. Um, There's a lot I like about him, so my point isn't to pick on this guy or to take a side or to be political here. I just want you to see something play out, okay? He tweeted this. He was, let me me first tell you, he was responding to, Nancy Pelosi went somewhere, I don't remember. Was it a restaurant or she was going into the state house in California? I can't remember, but she was going in somewhere and she just got mobbed by people screaming awful things at her, and it was a bad situation, and so he first tweeted that this is terrible, it shouldn't be happening on either side. He also said something about the Democrats are encouraging this kind of behavior against Republican people, this is happening on both sides, we should all be saying it's a bad thing, right? True enough. Then he says this, the difference between America and most nations across history is that we use persuasion instead of violence. When we stop trying to persuade each other, things can only go to a darker place. On its face, This is is great, right? He's advocating against violence and advocating for us talking and reasoning with each other. And he's saying something that we all want to be true about America, that we all want to be different about the country in which we live, and that we may actually believe in some ways is true relative to other cultures and other parts of the world. Here's what unfolded that I can show you um, on Twitter Here's one response. Dude, our nation was founded on a revolution, and our national anthem is about bombs. If you would stop and think, you would know better. Here's another. Remember when we persuaded Native Americans to give us all their land and then persuaded Africans to come to the U.S. in chains and suffer hundreds of years of brutality? Must be our irresistible charm. We're also quite persuasive in the Middle East and Africa and South America. Here's another, yeah, the USA is world-renowned for our persuasive influence in the Middle East, South America, and Africa, as well as our highly effective persuader, and I, this gets points just for creativity and writing, persuader-in-chief, five-sided persuadagon building, persuasion bay, and our fleet of peaceful, unifying persuasion drones. <laughs> the, the, the more, the facts came out as well, some facts came out as well. So Someone posted this that shows that the United States 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 spends more on defense uh, than the next seven countries combined. Six hundred and ten billion dollars on defense, and then there's this clever image of us persuading the world with our idea bombs. <laughs> this is this is our conversation. This is our reality. We are convinced, in many ways, that we're doing it best. That we are a people who believe that we should uh, encourage freedom and justice for all people and that we're achieving that in in really sort of noble means. And that was his heart when he posted that. I think he really wants that. I think he really wants it to be true. But the truth, which we also recognize, is that it's really broken and that we tend to whitewash over uh, the broken parts and hope for the best, <laughs> and wanna believe the best. Aside from this realm, aside from, from the legal system and the government, you just you don't have to look very far to see that that hope for justice takes plenty of hits in all kinds of, of parts of life where you see innocent people suffering, where you see bullies thriving, where you see people who are victimized and oppressed who have no voice, no recourse to deal with their situation. You see people who work quietly with integrity for decades and struggle to feed their families. And you see people with far less integrity prosper sometimes by stepping on those same people to get by and it seems like it never ends and it seems like no one ever deals with it. That's our reality, no matter how much we want it to be otherwise. And there's also, that sounds, I've painted a pretty bleak picture. Um, There's also, of course, plenty of good unfolding in the world. And that's part of how we remember that the bad is bad, because we still have access to the contrast. We don't just hunger for justice. Sometimes we see it. I mean, we know history. Slaves have been freed over the course of, of history. Abusers have been stopped and held to account. Organizations like International Justice Mission have sprung up and have dealt with massive injustices and, and, and changed the lives of thousands of people who were living in really awful, unjust situations. And I think I've seen just in my adult life A real awakening to injustice, especially among the church, that didn't exist before. But my honest confession to you is that I have no great hope that we're any closer to declaring a true win for justice by all of our human means than we were 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. It's incomplete what we do. It's imperfect. And the real triumph of justice as the way things are, things are just, is elusive. We find, when we, when we hold the ideal of justice up to the world around us, we find it unfulfilled and incomplete. And I think this, to, to sort of push us toward the series that we're going to be in the next few months, I think this the the trouble that we have with justice being unfulfilled demands a couple of things, a couple of kinds of answers or responses. The first is that I think it demands a culmination, some kind of completion of justice at some point. I, I don't accept, I won't accept, it can't be true that we're created with this deep hunger for justice and this deep joy that wells, in, wells up in us when we see it fulfilled, when we see it happen, but it will never really come to pass. I just can't believe that. I won't accept it, that we have that built into us, and yet we'll never see it happen. Even if I don't see a remedy for my personal injustices or for all the injustices around me before I die, I need to know that I'm part of a story that Martin Luther King described this way. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I need to know that there's some way, somehow, that that's true. I think the problem that we have with injustice demands, for me, knowing that that's true. But, though I believe Dr. King is right, and I believe he would agree with the statement that I'm about to make, the second part of what our experience with justice and injustice demands is this, a solution beyond our own capacities and our own moral arc. Because I'm gonna tell you something. By itself, my moral arc doesn't bend toward justice. It bends toward me. It it might go out for a little bit, and it comes right back here, eventually. I need, we need a solution beyond our own capacities and our own moral arc. So that's a question for us as we move forward. What kind of solution could there be? What kind of intervention outside of our own means might bring completion and wholeness and redemption to centuries, thousands of years of injustice? Okay, let's talk about beauty, Similar story. I'm going to talk about it for much less time. Don't worry. Um, but I do want to talk about it because I think it's important. Here's the, here are the next several verses of that passage from Isaiah. The prophet writes, A day will come when the wolf will live peacefully beside the wobbly need lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and yearling, newborn and slow, will rest secure with the lion." And a little child will tend them all. Bears will graze with the cows they used to attack. Even their young will rest together. And the lion will eat hay like gentle oxen. Neither will a baby who plays next to a cobra's hole. Nor a toddler who sticks his hand into a nest of vipers suffer harm. All my holy mountain will be free of anything hurtful or destructive. For as the waters fill the sea. The entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of the eternal. Then on that day that root from Jesse's line will stand as a signal for the peoples of the world who will come to him seeking guidance and direction. And glory, dial in here, glory will be restored to the land where he resides. The first part of this passage from Isaiah talks about justice. The second part talks about beauty. Both acknowledge a need for what is incomplete to be made complete, and both promise that there is a completion coming. There's a very similar dynamic here, I think, in thinking about beauty, though, depending on how you hear that word, it may seem less urgent to you to think about how do do we get our hands around beauty and and what's coming and how that problem is solved. Uh, I, I, I do think beauty and justice and all of these tensions between the partial but not yet a permanent nature of good versus bad. It's all interconnected and God cares about all of it. So here's, let me just tell you three things where um, I really see and experience beauty and then tell you the problem I run into. First area where I really see and experience beauty is in experiences with people I love. Uh, Going and doing things with people who I love starting with my family and with with others kind of moving out from that. When I look, when when I think about what are the moments when I feel really dialed into, man, this is beautiful, it's the first thing I think of. Amy and I went to the Oregon coast for our honeymoon. That was almost 19 years ago. It still has a really powerful effect thinking about going to that place that I'd never been before with my brand new wife and having that experience with her. Uh, We took the kids to Disney World literally for one day A few summers ago and it remains one of uh, of the most sort of beautiful experiences of my life and I'm not a crowd person I'm not really an amusement park person but it was that experience with them we went to Colorado with the Jones family several years ago Uh, I even feel this way about going to spend time with my extended family for holidays There's something special and beautiful that I experience in doing things that are meaningful for me with other people. Another area where I experience beauty is in experiences with music and writing, especially live music, going to different shows, and some of them are big shows and some of them are really small shows. Uh, Aiden and I went to see Colony House and the New Respects, who most of you have never heard of in the tiny little Grand Stafford uh, Theater in downtown Bryan last week and it was beautiful, and I loved it, and I looked forward to it, and uh, I enjoyed it. Third area for me um, is experiences with beautiful places. That starts for me in the mountains. I, if I didn't love all you so much, I would live in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. Um, but it goes to being out on the water, fishing. Uh, even the, I grew up in West Texas, so even there's a hidden beauty of West Texas who most of you will never, that most of you will never be able to see because there are scales over your eyes. Um But even that is beautiful to me. But here's the profoundly confusing reality of all of those things for me. I find immense joy in the anticipation of those experiences. And I find true joy when I'm in the the experience, okay? So in the lead up to it, I can't wait. And I think about it, and I don't always talk about it. I'm not a real bubbly person that talks about these kinds of things, but that's what's going on inside of me. I really get a lot of joy and, and, and can access the beauty of it even in my anticipation. Then when I'm there, I'm able to be there usually and, and experience the richness and the beauty of that experience and when I'm there, there's a voice and that voice starts to say to me, um, this is almost over. You've been waiting all this time for it and now it's only going to last Two hours or two days, or one week, and that's it. It's gone. This beautiful experience is gone. And In fact, you think it's great because you're already in it, but the fact that you're already in it means you're that much closer to it being over. Anybody else have this kind of experience? This is my struggle with beauty. The most beautiful things that I experience, I also have that going on. I'm deeply aware of the reality of the beauty and of its goodness, So much so that I live in this deep anticipation of it before it happens, but I'm also painfully in touch with the truth that the beauty of those particular experiences is finite, that it will not last, and that I will have to, what, go back to normal life that doesn't seem so beautiful. And so two things that I think that we're looking for here. Number one, I think we are longing for a day when that voice is silenced once and for all, and we don't have to worry that the beauty is going to end. And the second is that I think, I think, <laughs> there is something that can grow in us that makes that regular routine, what we consider mundane, beautiful in a way that's real. And that really matters. And I say all of that, I recognize from sort of a place of, of the luxury of that being my description and my experience with beauty. There are people in the world who don't who can't tell that kind of story about beauty. And so there's another problem, which is how does the whole world get to experience what Isaiah describes here, which is this picture where the glory of the Lord will be restored to all the land. How does that come for people For whom, if you went to them and said, tell me what's beautiful in your life, would not have an answer. Because the world is full of people who don't have an answer to that question. We look around, and I think that's our experience with the created world, with the whole of creation. Beauty is fleeting. It seems finite. It seems like we can't ever keep our hands on it. But it also seems real, in a way that it's pointing to something bigger and more infinite. What happens to me in those experiences, there's something spiritual, there's something otherworldly that I'm experiencing that that tells me this is a foretaste of something that's coming once and for all. I want to leave you with uh, four questions. These are a lot. Let me just say, these are big questions. There's a lot to them. You don't have to Uh, Come. you don't have to turn in an assignment with me with answers to these questions. You don't have to be able to answer all four of them in com group. But I think they're important things for us to think about as we move forward into talking about what the faith handed down to all of us once and for all has to say to us about our lives and about these problems. So here's the first question. How do you reconcile the tension of justice and injustice? And I think it's helpful for us to think about these first couple of questions in my life, how do I reconcile that, and in the world around me. Second question, how do you make sense of the mix of beauty, of beauty mundane, and ugliness in your life and in the world around you? Third question, do you believe justice and beauty are breaking in to redeem what is unjust and ugly Or are you resigned to muddling through and settling for temporary solutions and shelters? This is a personal, you don't have to answer this to anybody else unless you think it would be helpful for you to do so or helpful for them. But it's a personal question that I I want us to all think about. What are we convinced is true about the world and about reality and about what's coming? And here's the last question. They're all gonna get smaller when this one comes up. But I just wanted them all on one screen for those of you that like to take pictures of them. It also will be up on the internet today or tomorrow, or tomorrow or Tuesday probably, so you can see them there. But last question is this, can you articulate the story of God's love for and presence in the world that is truly good news for those hungering for justice and longing for more than fleeting beauty? And this is, I want this thread to run through everything we do in this series. I want you to reflect what are you convinced of? What do you believe? And then I want you to think about what kind of story are you capable of telling to people in the world around us who need to hear some good news for their lives and for what is an avalanche of bad news if we're just looking at what's coming at us on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray.